You're listening to Hire Through Retire, a health and wealth podcast with FOIA leaders, Bill Harmon and Heather LaValle, tackling all things from 401ks to HSAs and everything in between. We're talking to the best and brightest in the industry to bring you the latest in health, wealth, and investment trends in the workplace. Come along with us on our journey to help all Americans become well-planned, well-invested, and well-protected. Hi, I'm Heather LaValle, and we've launched this new podcast to bring you the latest news and insight from around the broader workplace trends. I'm here today with my friend, colleague, and co-host, Bill Harmon. Bill, welcome. Hey, thanks, Heather, and excited to be back with everyone today. So we've all been in the COVID world now for over a year, and there's no denying that COVID has created financial challenges for American workers and companies alike. As a result, employees are seeking greater support from their employers in helping them to address their health and wealth needs. And while we've heard from some of our own experts in previous episodes, consumers sure have been resilient that getting back on track when it comes to retirement savings is an important topic to talk about. That's right, Bill. You know, many individuals have had no choice but to withdraw funds from the retirement savings in recent months. So knowing there are opportunities for employers to implement solutions that can help individuals get back on track is equally as important. So here today to talk about those changes and talk to us more about behavioral finance and the role that it can play when it comes to coming out of this recession is the behavioral finance expert and guru himself, Shlomo Bernardzi. Shlomo, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for the invite. Slama, let's start with employers and what they might be able to do with their workforce during this time of rebuilding. As you know, the CARES Act opened the door for many to have options for loans and distributions from their hard-earned nest egg. And we realized many individuals had no choice but to look there for help. But that raises the important question of how we can help people get those savings back post-pandemic. One thing we hear about often on our side is plan design. Why don't you tell us a little more about that and how it plays a role here? So a lot of individuals, as you pointed out, struggle during uh, the pandemic. And uh, some might not have a choice and they had to virtually lower their saving weights, uh, stop contributing altogether, and maybe even uh, take money out of their 401ks, whether it's as as a loan or whether it is as a withdrawal. And I think if we think about kind of what we were trying to do as a nation, we were trying to encourage people to save more. We had the SECURE Act shortly before the pandemic, and then the pandemic hit us and we kind of shifted gears to making it easier for people to take money out of the system. And I think we have to kind of combine kind of those two perspectives. We need to help people plan for the long term, but they might hit some bumps uh, along the way where we might need to help them actually um, cash out some of those savings. And how do we actually combine these two together? And I think behaviorally, there is actually a way to do it, which is at the point where an employee is struggling, and he or she is trying to lower the saving rates or or stop contributing altogether, it's a unique opportunity behaviorally because you got the attention of the employee. And at that point, we could virtually capitalize on uh, what we call the present bias. We live in the here and now, and we kind of forget about the future. And what we could do is when someone is trying to lower their savings or cash out, at that point, 
we can offer them, in a sense, a path backward. We could say, okay, we understand you can't save today. How about you start saving again a year from today and you'll be saving that the exact rate you used to will put you back on the path. But equally important is actually to make sure that those saving rates will keep going up. And we have to think about not only getting people back to whatever the 6% that they were saving, but to give them an autopilot to get back to the 6 and then go up to 8 and 10 and so on. And I think that could be extremely effective while we virtually combine kind of the get back on track with actually asking for a loan at the same point in time. You know, that's really interesting. And it makes me think about some um, studies that you've led regarding automatic enrollment and the uh, plan design around automatic enrollment, where it really created a lot of dialogue where your studies showed that it is possible to dramatically increase default rates in automatic enrollment without increasing the number of participants that are opting out of the plan. So with that in mind, what opportunities do employers have to help here and how can we use that to raise saving rates in the future? Yeah, I think it's a great point, Bill. So if, if you go backward and kind of think about automatic enrollment back to, you know, 1998, I guess, with the, the opinion letter that, that Mark Ivory at the time uh, wrote that suggested automatic enrollment at, say, 2 or 3%. The industry kind of took that letter, in a sense, and used it as kind of um, the number to be used. And before we noticed, most automatic enrollment plans had a default saving rate of 3%, which is way too little. We know that and wouldn't get people to the finish line. Yet worse, it could create an illusion of safety and security because, hey, my employer set it up and, and I just went along. It should be the right thing for me. And years later, we read the, the seminal paper of John Bashir at Harvard and, and Bridget Medry and Dave Lapson and others showing that you could actually push the envelope here and you could automatically enroll people at 6%. They will not opt out and they will just save double the amount. They will save 6% rather than 3 And that tends to work best for people who actually don't save much to begin with. If you think about the high end of the income spectrum, a lot of people who are actually <laughs> making uh, good money, they, they save already on their own. So what happens with those more aggressive automatic enrollment programs, they really lift the saving rates of people who didn't save much on their own. And very often, it actually lifts the saving rates of minorities and other groups that generally don't save it much, it can actually not just reduce, but virtually close societal gaps in how much people save. But back to your question, which is, uh, so what do we do? Is 6% the number? We've done this study with, with Voya plans where we actually push the envelope and use 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11%. And we kind of said, let's see what happens. And what we found out as we pushed the, the saving rates higher and higher, that people didn't opt out. 
they didn't actually walk away. And we were surprised, to be honest. Um, <clears throat> but what we also found out that if the recommended saving rate was too high, employees lowered it. They actually engaged surprisingly. We were surprised and they would lower it. So what does it mean for a plan sponsor? The, the two lessons we, we think. One is that, first of all, 7% suggested saving rate or a default worked better than six in the sense that people didn't opt out, they didn't walk away, but they did save a bit more. They said maybe half a percentage point more when we suggested seven rather than six. The other thing that we learned that it really works well for people who were thinking to maybe save five and you suggest six or seven. And we kind of, I think about it as kind of going to the gym and having a personal trainer. If you could do five uh, pull-ups, he shouldn't suggest that you'll do 12 but they should push you to do one more, maybe two more. So it's kind of the same concept. If we can actually suggest to people a saving way that is slightly higher than what they would normally do, then we could probably get them to save um, a bit more. And, and that, I think, is a very important uh, takeaway for plan sponsors. When you set a default, don't be too conservative. It's okay to go aggressive because we learn that people don't run away, they don't opt out, but we also learn that they would adjust the numbers lower if they need to. So there's not much downside to setting it up a bit higher, very much like there's not much downside for your personal trainer to know that you could do five pull-ups. Why not suggest six or seven? So th those were kind of the lessons we had from the study without getting into kind of what I think would be the future, which is more personalized default rates in 401k plans. Shlomo, that's a, you know, really um, groundbreaking research on, on really how far we can push participants and, and plan sponsors around auto-enrollment. Could you talk briefly about re-enrollment and how it can be used to give everyone access to higher saving rates? I think you kind of talked about that a little bit with people having to step away and, and you know, things happen and kind of getting back into it. But what are your thoughts around uh, re-enrollment? I want to give a bit of background about re-enrollment, but then I think it has a really important role during the pandemic and kind of helping people um, build wealth. Re-enrollment, when, when kind of small number of plan sponsors started to use it in the U.S., uh, some felt that maybe it's a bit aggressive whether we're going to keep re-enrolling people. What if they already opted out? Are we going to place them back into the plan? And globally, it is actually a rather common practice. In the U.K., for example, employers have to. It's a requirement have to re-enroll every employee, even if they already opted out five times, every three years. So if you opt out today in three years, <clears throat> we must, by law, automatically place you back in the plan. So this is a bit of, of background, and we've kind of been a bit slow in the U.S. to really kind of, you know, implement it. But I think it has a lot of benefits. The data that I've seen from other countries has been that um, people who opted out, when you actually re-enroll them, 
about half of them actually forgot that they, they opted out. They would like to be in the plan. And on that second chance, they actually stick to the plan and they save. And when you think about the pandemic, re-enrollment actually has a critical role because people have been shaken by the emotional, economical, maybe health situation. They maybe left the plan. And this is a, the best possible time to start thinking about resetting, in a sense, the plan and placing everyone back in. I say it with one caveat, which is we're not in the business of tricking people to save if they don't want to. So the main thing to keep in mind is that opting out should be made easy. It shouldn't be difficult. And as long as opting out is easy, then I think it actually absolutely the probably number one action item that the plan sponsor can take to ensure that everyone gets back on track quickly. So let's pivot. That's great information on uh, participants and, and some plan design around getting participants to save more. Let's talk about maybe things that employers can do, and particularly related to match formulas and plan design around that. You recently um, did some surveys, some studies on a stretch match. Can you talk about what a stretch match is and how that can help in plan design? Sure. It's, it's a rather old concept, but I think it's very timely given uh, the pandemic because it really helps motivate employees to save more. And it can also defer matching costs a couple of years into the future, which could help struggling employers. But let's first um, talk about the, the psychology of the match and, and what is a stretch match and how it's related. So we know that employers like the idea of having a match. So if you think about match, no match, people can easily understand the difference and they react to the fact that there is a match, there's a slightly higher chance that people will save if you have a match. All of that is very intuitive. The next thing that we know is that people um, are not very sensitive to the match rate. And there have been a couple of plants that have dramatic variations in the match rate. I think going from as low as like 25% to as high as 150%. And there was very little sensitivity of employees to changes in the match rate. And I think the reason for that is that as an employee, unless you've been working for Morningstar, um, Wilshire Associates, Carlin uh, Associates, and you're part of this industry, you have no idea whether a reasonable match is 25 cents on the dollar or 50 cents on the dollar or 75 cents on the dollar. So we can't really react much to numbers that are out of context, that we don't know what they mean and what they should be. The last piece of information is that people do react to the match cap. So if you actually match up to 6% rather than up to 5%, then people will be more likely to save 6% rather than 5 But that is actually intuitive too, because people have this sense of, I don't want to leave money 
on the table. Let me get the full match. So if we take it all together, this idea that people want a match, so probably no need to toss it away, but they're sensitive to the cap, not the match rate, we could take a typical match formula of, say, 50 cents on the dollar up to 6% of pay and stretch it. We can now make it 30 cents on the dollar up to 10% of pay. Now, there is here, first of all, um, incentives for employees to save more to get the full match. But also during the pandemic, if you actually implement a stretched match today, not all employees will switch to saving 10 right away. It might take a bit of time to some to react. And also, if you have an escalator feature, as you take people from, say, 6 to 8 to 10, that could take place over a couple of years. What does it do for the employer? It actually helps shift cost from now into 2023 and help actually manage the match budget, which is very challenging for some employers in this economy. So I think this is a great time to actually have to rethink our match formulas, and we could actually calculate with certain assumptions what different match formulas would cost an employer. But we also have to remember, which is a different topic, that a stretched match works really well with an escalator feature because you want to make sure that lower income individuals who might kind of be like, oh, we cannot save 10%. It's, it's not fair that they're matching all the way up to 10. Uh, we can't actually participate. Well, with an escalator feature, we could get those lower income employees to 10% over time as well. I think the biggest takeaway is when you think about designing a plan, you have to think about the different components of the puzzle and how they work together not just one ingredient at a time. That makes a lot of sense, uh, Shlomo, and uh, a great tool for uh, employers to be able to utilize. Uh, I'm going to switch gears a little bit and talk about, we've seen some of the most significant legislation impacting the retirement industry with the SECURE Act uh, in recent years. And within the SECURE Act, they recently allowed uh, for encouraging retirement plans to raise the cap on auto-escalated savings rates from 10 to 15% would love to get your, your thoughts on this change. So as, as I understand it, <laughs> the 10% was practically a mistake. It was, it was there in the regulations, but, but everyone I chatted with in, in Washington were like, it should have been an example. We're not sure why it's there. We don't know. So I mean, to find out where this number came from, I think there was a consensus in Washington that that number is too low and, and we shouldn't set the plans with such a, a limit on, on what employers can do and still enjoy the safe harbor and all sorts of other benefits that came with it. And if you think about what people need to save, especially given that um, a lot of people didn't start as early as they should have, so there's a catch-up to be done. Then I think the 15% makes a lot more sense as a rule of thumb than, than the 10%. It's 
really important, I think, for plan sponsors to use the opportunity and revise if they have a 10% cap, revise it to 15. The other thing that is important, we've noticed during the pandemic that, that job turnover is going up because of the instability of certain industries. So it's not only important to set the cap at 15, it's important to get there faster. Because if you think about the old uh, formulas of kind of starting maybe at 3% and going up 1% a year up to 10, it takes you seven years to get there. By that time, you switch jobs and you're starting again from three. It's not really building wealth and financial security. So my rule of thumb would be start at save seven, go up to 9, 11, 13, and 15, go up by 2% increments. Well, that, that makes a lot of sense. So let's stay on that track on um, all the recent legislative changes. And I guess if we were to look back at what we've learned going forward, what are some steps that we can take to make it easier for people to get through the next crisis? Let's hope we don't have one for quite some time, but how can they get through that without having to take cash out from their retirement nest egg? I think people realize that uh, they need emergency savings. That, that there's a lot of uncertainty in the world and good and bad things could happen to them. And we've been working hard on trying to um, make it easy for employers, to make it easy for employees to have emergency savings. Uh, I'm actually doing some research on that right now and hope you know, to have some results in the next six to 12 months but I think it's critical because my concern is that an employee uh, hits the next whatever recession, pandemic, you name it, um, you know, global cyber attack that crashes or whatever the thing is, there are lots of risks out there in the world and they need money and they go and they tap into the 401k. But what often happens, and we've seen it actually during the pandemic, it's kind of a, a black and white decision, yes, no, they go and cash out the entire account. <laughs> so someone who might've maybe needed 2,000, 3,000 bucks to actually pay the bills until they figure out what happens next, cash out $100,000 in retirement savings. And emergency saving is one way to actually avoid those challenges. And we're at the be beginning of, of the journey really to uh, figure out how to best offer and scale it. But we have a research program in place and we hope that you know in six to 12 months we'll be much smarter about it. I can tell you that I am surprised by the strong uh, demand for emergency savings uh, from employees. Um, I've been uh, working with one fintech company uh, that's been offering an emergency saving account, and they actually had a third of their users, a third of the users sign up. So the good news is the demand is there. We just have to you know, finish our research on how to best make it attractive and easy for employees to use it in kind of a large, small, mid-sized employer setting. Thanks. I think you're absolutely right. I'm, I'm so happy to hear that people really are engaging and saying that should this happen again, I want to be prepared. 
So Shlomo, as always, it's a pleasure talking with you. And if I could add one plug, we're coming up this year on our five-year anniversary of the launch of our Behavioral Finance Institute for Innovation. I want to say kudos to you and your team on this accomplishment. And I really want to thank you as always for your insight, which has helped so many of our clients and their employees when it comes to greater retirement savings. So thank you for your insight today and broadly throughout all of your work. Thank you. And so concludes another episode. To all of you out there listening, thank you again for tuning in. If you want to keep hearing more from us, remember to go to our show page and hit the subscribe to be notified of each new episode. Thanks, Heather. And you can let us know that you're enjoying the podcast by giving us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thank you all so much for coming along on our journey today. Stay well. This information is provided by Voyeur for your education only. Neither Voyeur nor its representatives offer tax or legal advice. Any opinions expressed within do not necessarily reflect those of the Voyeur family of companies or its representatives and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Please consult your tax or legal advisor before making a tax-related investment or insurance decision. Products and services offered through the Voya family of companies.